Welcome in, everyone. This is Jason Elam. Welcome into another messy conversation. I'm joined once again by my good friends Carl and Laura Forehand. Carl and Laura, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to talk to y'all again. Um, Carl, you are now about eight months post stroke. How are you feeling? Can you give everybody an update? Well, I'm feeling pretty good. I kind of ran out of insurance money on the rehab, rehabilitation. Um, is that the right word? Therapy, yeah, therapy, re- rehab. So consulted with my chiropractor and other sources and kind of working on my own to do, keep doing therapy. I walk a lap around the track once, once a day or once every other day. So still progressing. Um, and my attitude's fairly good most days. <laughs> and, uh, and I think just like everything else, it it had brought up more <clears throat> issues that I had to work on, and some. But overall, doing really well, and just went back to started a new job Friday yesterday. Um, probably a week or so back from this taping, um, I'm doing pretty good, continuing to to move forward. And Laura, how's it been for you this last eight months? Well, um, it's like I tell people, it's, it's like a new dance, um, you know, getting used to kind of a new normal. It was probably the, at first, like when he was in rehab, you know, in Kansas city, there was something, you know, we had something to do every day. So, you know, there was tasks to be taken care of, but I would say the hardest part was when he first came home and, you know, just learning to adjust to our, our, our new life with this new situation. Um, but you know, that's just kind of where you have to remember to keep those lines of communication open and, you know, uh, like Carl said, continue to do the work because it, it does kind of bring up things that maybe, you know, it's just kind of peeling off another layer of the onion, I guess. And there's things that you realize that you need to deal with that maybe you haven't dealt with. So, but it's, it's, I would say it's getting better for sure. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You hear, I hear a lot of people talk now on social media about inner work Mm -hmm. and putting in the work and doing the work. And some of it almost has a tone that you do the work one time yeah, and then everything is perfect after that. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely not been my experience, <laughs> but, but then something like a stroke gets thrown into the mix. And even if you thought you were doing okay, there had to be more layers to that onion than you probably were expecting. Um, not, not that there's a silver lining because some situations just suck yeah, and there's nothing good about them. But is there anything that you could say that the two of you have learned about yourselves from this experience? I think for me, um, just, I mean, this is going to sound strange maybe, but for me, it's just realizing that what I have to say is valid, that my feelings are valid. Like I realize that I'm not the one that, had the stroke, but everybody, you know, 
if we had children at home, I would say that, you know, we would all be going through this with just Carl and I being at home. We both had this experience in very different ways. And so we're both going to go through, you know, lots of things that we need to process. And both of those um, situations, his situation and my situation, his emotions, my emotions, it's all valid. And um, I think that's something that I really had to learn that, you know, if, if I'm frustrated with something that I need to be sure that we're talking about that. Um, and it may be, it may not be anything that, that that's within our control, but I still need to be sure that I'm being heard just as much as, you know, it's, it's valid for him to be heard as well. I hope that makes sense, but I I think a lot of times, um, caregivers, you know, it's really easy to do the caregiving and like kind of suffer in silence, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, it's not healthy. It's just not healthy to do that at all. So those lines of communication have to be open. And if you don't feel like you can talk to, you know, the person, like in this case, if I didn't feel like I could talk to Carl because he's still dealing with the stroke recovery, you know, you need to reach out to, to someone, be it professional or, you know, it was really kind of good for me to talk to, um, our youngest daughter because she has been in the caregiver role for, um, ever since Jack was born. I mean, she's his mom. Yes. But she's also had to do a lot of medical caregiving with him, but also I reached out to a therapist and, you know, I think that was one of the best decisions that I made. Mm. Carl, how about you? Yeah. So, you know, without the work that we had done before, I wouldn't have been able to face this challenge, but then challenges came up throughout that as they happen, you have to deal with them as they, as they happen. You you can't say this is not fair or, you know, I don't deserve this or whatever. You, You have to say, this is the challenge that's presented itself to me and try your best to communicate about it and then uh, deal with it and do the work, keep doing the work, even though you got other work to do, (laughs) like trying to heal. Um, But I've been learning a lot about acceptance. Mm. Uh, And acceptance always seemed like a cop-out before, but, you know, it's a part of presence to say, this is how it is, you know doesn't matter that it wasn't fair or that I didn't want it or that it's, it's just, this is how it is. And if um, that's, it's not a cop out. It's, it's just an understanding. I don't want to bypass it. I don't want to, I can be grateful without bypassing it and saying it's the, it's the Lord's will or something like that. But Mm -hmm. Uh, I can say this is this is how it is because it's better to deal with reality than fantasy. And, right. And yeah. if I deal with what is, then I have a good chance of getting through it. And if I fail, I'll 
you know, start again tomorrow and right. it'll be okay. Yeah, failure's not final. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I've been, again, I've, I see a lot of things on social media lately about, you know, um, the freedom that comes with accepting your life as it is, not as you wish it would be. And every time I see one of those, Carl, I think of you because so many people in your situation and, and Laura's as well, just pretend, you know, they, they just try to, how do we get back to what life was like before this happened? How do we pretend that this is not a factor in our lives? And I understand that for many people, that's probably a coping mechanism. It, it may mm-hmm. be a survival tactic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but y'all have just faced this so head on. And Carl, I remember watching videos of you doing the work in um, your physical therapy. And it was just like, you know, the first few times you tried to do something with your hand, there didn't seem to be a whole lot behind it. But then you did, you know, you worked it and you worked harder and you just kept going and didn't quit and didn't give up. And you've certainly just embraced your life for what it is in this moment. Now, obviously, um, do we wish that this had never happened? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess most of us probably would, but um, you have absolutely embraced your life as it is. And I think there's a whole lot of courage in that. Yeah. Does it feel that way as you're living it? Do you feel courageous? Um, Some days, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's better some days, other days I'm a little more um, discouraged I I just, you know, it's really with a stroke. I think a stroke is something unique where the recovery is so gradual that you you have to take it about two weeks at a time. You know, did I progress an inch forward in two weeks? Not, not even did I get anywhere today, you know? So it's so gradual that you just have to say, all I can do is keep trying and, and accept where I am move forward, keep going. Mm. And and then you get really excited for little things. You know, when your, your hand moves a little, my shoulder's a little freer, and I just noticed that finally. And, and that's, you know, like as good as any raise or anything I got before that was good. So <laughs> it helps with gratitude. Yeah. Well, I remember our first conversation, it's been years ago, that the three of us had. And you two had just decided during that conversation that you were not going to go back to church anymore. And so now, okay, first of all, most of us didn't realize when you said that, that we were all about to quit going to church for two years (laughs) because of COVID, you know, except for the cult members who, uh, you know, had to go and sacrifice their health uh, to prove their faith. But um, you guys... Uh, once again, we're on the cutting edge of something. Uh, there's the whole deconstruction thing has just become this huge uh, moment in the life of the church. Um, did y'all know then that you were at the beginning of something that so many others were going to be experiencing? I had no idea. I, I mean, I guess I was just being incredibly selfish at the at that moment and just thought this isn't something I can do anymore. I, part of my story is that, you know, probably two years before Carl actually left our last church, I, I had emotionally stepped away. I mean, I kept going because it was, you know, my, 
I'm using air quotes, duty as a pastor's wife to, you know, be there on the front row. And, uh, but emotionally I had disconnected from the church, but, you know, when, when we both kind of stepped away, when Carl kind of said, you know, we're, we're done or I'm done. Um, I, I had no idea that there was, um, there were other people that were experiencing this, the same thing that we were. So I had no idea. Carl, how about you? Yeah, I, I think I was the same way. And, you know, if we started deconstructing in 2016 or so, for a couple of years, I tried to go to a big church and um, trying to fit back in for a long time. But then, in you know, in 2019 or so, three years ago, like you're saying, when we finally agreed that, that you know, we were arguing too much on the way there and back, that we would stop and try to, I tried to go to the church across the street for a few weeks and it didn't work. And, um, it was just the right decision for us. And I think what we've noticed about, you know, writing the book two years ago and what we think now is it just becomes more and more obvious that that's, that's where everything seems to be headed. Um, we can talk about that later, but yeah, in the, in the beginning, it was just the right thing for us and sitting on our porch on Sunday mornings, you know, trying to convince ourselves that was the right decision yeah. for us and, and not really um, thinking too much about other people. You mentioned other people. Any, did you get any pushback? from deciding that you were not going to be a part of that anymore? Anybody, had had you gotten immersed in the big church enough that people would say, uh, I think this is the wrong decision? For me, some people in the in that big church, when I spoke out online, um, trying to get discussion going about that topic, um, they, they took it as a criticism of their church, and did accuse me of bashing the church. And it might have, you know, it could have been in the way I was expressing it in the beginning. But I think, you know, most of the feedback you get is centered around, well, you need community. Where are you going to get your community? And uh, we can talk about that later in depth, I guess. But, um, you know, I, overall, I, don't, I wouldn't say that we've got a tremendous amount of pushback, but you do, you know, when you try to talk about it online, you do um, get some alternate views, let's just say, <laughs> and sometimes some, some meanness. I think for me, I was just, it was a chance for me to finally, like, I, I don't know, be, be out of that. So I was very content to kind of, just be by myself. So I didn't really like, I didn't get on social media and all that other um, stuff. I really didn't post anything about us not going to church anymore. I do remember talking to some, you know, friends and we live in a small town. And so that it seemed kind of odd to them because that's kind of what you do in a small town is everybody goes to some, one of the churches around here or so, you think, or so it's portrayed Seems, that way. Yeah. Um, 
but so I, I didn't really get any pushback, um, mainly because I was very happy to be incredibly introverted about it. You had so many expectations on you for so long in the church world that it was probably freeing to not have to share any of yourself with anybody. Yeah, and I'm still like that to, I would say, a greater extent than than Carl is. You know, I mean, I totally support what he does and how he speaks out um, because he saw probably way more happening within the church and especially within our denomination than I did. Um, but he also respects the fact that I'm going to be a lot more introverted and not, not put a lot of stuff out there on social media or do a lot of talking about it. Although I'm starting to get just a little bit bolder. Yeah. So. I'm also a little more stubborn and from Oklahoma. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, you know, sometimes when people push back, I'm a little um, uh, confrontational or something like a that. A little bit. A little bit. I, yeah, I, think. I would say you're less, you know, less grumpy about it. I don't know the right word. <laughs> I really, I really, really don't like bullies. And I don't like uh-huh. for someone to bully someone else and or to bully me. Um, so I'd, I would push back in those ways, I guess, sometimes. So you guys have had this experience. It's now been a couple of years that you have not been a part of a local church. You've been sitting on the front porch on Sunday mornings, loving your grandkids. Um, Any regrets at all? Do you ever miss it? Do you ever think maybe this was not the right move? So two years ago, right before the pandemic, we sit down to kind of write this book and and talk about the, some observations about the church and then, thriving outside of organized religion. So we we wanted to really evaluate those things to, say, to see if we were faking ourselves out. It, you know, what's really wrong with church? What's not working in church? And are we really thriving um, or not? And so we, two years ago or so, we sat down and wrote this, wrote it together, and then um, edited it and read it, and then offered it for free to people. But then two years later, decided to publish it. So we read through it again when we were dropping back and forth to Kansas City for therapy. And we not only did we still agree with it, but it was still moving to us to read it. And then also we realized in those two years um, with the pandemic, you know, the failure of the church in the pandemic and Trumpism, um, the insurrection, all those things that happened that you know well. Over those two years, we had to write an afterword in the book. And our conclusion was not only did we make the right decision and not only do we believe this stuff, but it's even stronger now. The church is in a worse position than it was two years ago and we're even more convinced that we made the right decision and probably now leaning closer to, we don't ever want to talk people out of anything, but um, even more convinced to share that with others, that there's something systemically wrong with the Western church. 
So Laura, mm-hmm. any regrets on your part? Do you ever miss it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitive. That's the sound bite right there that I was going for with that question. <laughs> I figured I'd let Carl go first because he's a little more eloquent. My answers, no. Because <laughs> you were like, not hell even, no. Yeah. Not even a little bit. Yeah, not even a little bit. That's right. That's right. Actually, you know, to be honest with you, and, and it's something that I've just realized that I feel for me outside the walls of church and outside of organized religion, I am so much freer to love and to help. There's no restrictions on that, you know, and the denomination that we were a part of and, and the churches that Carl pastored and even the churches that we went to, you know, there's always, some parameters around, you know, who you can truly love and who you can truly help, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, yeah, might, we might be a church that welcomes um, queer people, but, you know, we, we're not going to affirm mm-hmm. queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Yeah. So if that makes sense, and that's why, you know, I I can't see me going back into an organization um, and giving my time and my money um, that is not going to love freely and to help others freely. Because I feel like if we think about the Jesus of the Bible that we profess to read and believe in, then isn't that what we should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. But that gets lost, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. In the organization of the organized religion. Yes. At some point, the machine takes over and survival of the organization is the only thing that matters. And it doesn't matter that people get crushed in the cogs of the machine. Yeah, and that should not be okay. And and we've heard um, often over these last couple years you know, people tell us, well, that's not my experience. Well, that's not how it, how it is at my church or the churches I've been a part of. But, you know, Carl and I have shared before that the fact that it's happening anywhere at any, you know, church um, that professes the love of Jesus Christ, the fact that it's happening should, should, cause us to stand up and take note. It should not be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've got a new response when I hear that from people. Um, when folks are like, well, you know, I'm that that's terrible that that happened. And, you know, you've had a bad experience with church, but that hasn't been my ex- experience at all. And I'm, I'm always so happy for people when, when they say that I'm glad they haven't sure. been jaded by church. Absolutely. But at the same time, I'm like, let me talk to the last 10 people who left your church. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to ask them if on the way out the door and since they left, if they have encountered the unconditional love of God through the church that you're now defending. Mm. When you say that, and listen, I, I I understand there are good churches out there. I think they're few and far between. Mm. And they typically um, don't last very long because the survival of the organization is not pre, uh, pre, pre, 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not the, the main thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they don't tend to last very long, but preeminent was the word I was looking yeah. for. Sorry. Anyway, Rob Bell, my brain Rob Bell tells, kicked out. Rob Bell tells a story about a fish standing next to the water. And if you can imagine that, how he takes about an hour to, to describe it. But the, if the fish is standing next to the water and looking out over the ocean, like where you live, um, he sees those waves coming in. He sees all that beauty and rhythm and everything that happens, you know, on the beach. Um, he is seeing it for the first time and he sees it from a, that perspective because he's not in the water. When he's in the water, he can't see the water. All he can see is the other things in the water and it's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. He's too close. And we were challenged to take a step away from organized religion. And when we did that, we saw a different vantage point. We saw a different perspective and we saw things that we didn't see when we were inside. So I think, yeah, I think that's a good, good challenge you have for people, but also to take a step back and get outside of it for a little while and then take an honest evaluation like we did. And you see things you didn't see before. Like you said, the organization always comes first. Mm -hmm. There's the, the time, the energy, the money is spent on the show and paying salaries in the buildings. Um, there's very little left over for your care or for the care of others. And it's, it's a systemic thing that um, when you say it's better here um, aren't you biased <laughs> and are, aren't you too close to see it? That's mm, what I would possibly, say. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times this book that the two of you worked on together and the book is called out into the desert. It's being re released by choir today as this episode is being released. And I'm so excited because I, you know, I almost wish that every book could go through the testing that this book has gone through. You wrote it two years ago. You gave away a whole bunch of copies of the PDF for free to people to get in, insight and feedback and see how it resonated with them. And then you reread it to see, as you mentioned earlier, does this still resonate with us? Mm -hmm. And not only did it still resonate, but you felt it stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I wish every book could go through that sort of testing. I mean, I think that's a huge testament to the truth uh, and the authenticity of this book. And so I'm really excited for people to get the published copy in their hands with the new afterword. Um, first of all, Carl, how in the world did you get Laura to agree to write a book with you? <laughs> <laughs> she says that I used to walk around town and uh, people would give me stuff at our first church. And I told her it's because I have a real pitiful look on my face all the time. <laughs> And so I think she felt sorry for me and uh, agreed to help me out. And I write quite a bit faster than she does. And she'll admit to that because she does it while she's watching cooking shows. And um, I, I think this stuff really needed to come out. And especially the stories we needed to tell and especially the stories Laura needed to tell that I couldn't tell. Um and when they finally did and when it finally meshed together, and um, it, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think, 
um, people appreciate that we don't necessarily agree on everything in this book. Uh, there were some times when we disagreed or had a different perspective of what was important in that subject area. So I don't think I'm answering your question, but uh, I think I think she's probably more glad she did now than when she was doing it. And if you know Laura, if you really know Laura, you can't really make her do anything. <laughs> you just got to talk her into it somehow. Yeah. Laura, it seemed almost when I when I was reading some of the chapters that you were involved in, it almost seemed therapeutic. Did it feel that way when you were writing it? Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. For me, it was kind of the first step in healing. You know, like like I was sharing earlier, you know, with the whole stroke recovery, sometimes as a caregiver, you, you know, suffer in silence for lack of a better term. And I definitely felt that as a pastor's wife, because I mean, I still remember the time that Carl said, you know, I feel led to go into ministry. And like, I really didn't think that was going to I was going to be affected by that at all. I thought, okay, well, you know, just like any other job, I'll just, you know, I'll support what you do. That'll be fine. Um, But little did I know, you know, that there's a, there's a whole nother, (laughs) you know, dynamic there um, as a pastor's wife. And so I feel like for the 20 plus years that he was in ministry, you know, I, I, I was quiet. I thought that was part of my duty, if you will. Um, And not by Carl, but just by, you know, the, the church and specifically the denomination that we were in, it was like women were seen and not heard. And you are, you know, you are there to support your husband. Um, So it was, it was, it was kind of the beginning of my healing, if you will, to write um, and actually put into words what I had experienced and how that made me feel um, just to kind of own that was, was a really big step for me. There's a, a segment of the deconstruction movement that is beginning to talk about a time of, you know, de-churching when you come out of the church, you know, the church doesn't necessarily come out of you just because you quit going, Mm -hmm. you know, you still find a lot of those same toxic cycles at work in your life after you quit being a part of the Sunday morning show. Did, did y'all notice any of that? Did, did, did you catch yourself falling into old ways of thinking long after you didn't have to live there anymore? Well, I mean, I I think, first of all, one of the first chapters is that, you know, addicted to church, we are anything that alters your mood. People say, I, I love, you know, I like my church or I love church. I say, of course you do, because that's how it's designed to make you like it. And it makes you feel different. It alters your mood and that produces an addiction. People used to say, I'm addicted to church. I would say as a pastor, you and I both talked about this, um, Jason. We said, you know, I miss preaching. And why do we miss preaching? We, because, you know, there was an addictive quality about it. It did something for us, right? 
And so I'm probably not answering your question, but I think, um, you know, that was my first thing was just that I had to do something to be, uh, you know, to be affirmed, to be accepted. And it was all about doing. And that's what led me to write the being book, you know, because I was moving away from that, but it was very, very hard. Um, had to face those trauma and shadow issues that had built up. And um, my need, even in my my practices, to have to be doing a lot of things instead of learning just to sit and be quiet and listen. Um, but there's, there's so much more. It's just really, it's hard to untangle right now and say, say specific things. Um, but I think that I, I've noticed, you know, at the farmer's markets, I've, I've, I've noticed the really religious people um, still, uh, even at the farmer's market, stand in little circles and uh, little huddles, and they stand away from people. They're, they're friendly. They're nice overall. But but they're addicted to that that group, that faux community that says uh, we um, we're different than them. And you know it's like um, Brene Brown says, "Common enemy intimacy." It's we're different, but we're alike. So. Um, we're, we're the same color. We think the same way. We do the same things, and we're together. But it's it's not a real community. It's a faux community, and you have to kind of break free from that. And we were told that that was our family, mm. and it's it's really not like a family. Um, it's it's a faux family. It's a faux community that, and and you you have to. You have to break break away from that, and, and really, the only way to do it is to be by yourself, go inside, and learn to get comfortable with that. Then, when you go back to interact with people, it's a lot more genuine and real. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the subtitle of this book, "Out into the Desert," is "Thriving Outside of Organized Religion." That sounds like a really big promise. <laughs> do, do y'all feel like you're thriving outside of organized religion? I mean, it is a pretty big word for sure. Um, I I don't want to say like, I wouldn't want to say surviving because I feel like surviving is like, you're just barely making it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So for me, yes, because for me, I feel it is more freeing. Like I was sharing with you earlier it is more freeing out here, um, outside of the walls of organized religion. Um, I, I don't feel like I have those restraints on myself that my denomination was expecting me to be a certain way to only, um, interact with certain people to, you know, only, love and help certain groups of people that believed like us or acted like us. 
Um, so to me, I am thriving because I'm finding out who I truly am. I think I had lost that because I was trying to be something that someone else, that an organization wanted me to be rather than be who, like if we're talking about who we're created to be, I couldn't be that inside the walls of the church because every time I did something that was remotely myself, um, Carl got called into a big meeting <laughs> with uh, people of the church saying, extra people showed yeah, up. extra people showed up and, you know, <laughs> supposedly I'd done something I shouldn't have been doing. So, which, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't anything catastrophic. Mm-hmm. It was me just being me, but that was not who they wanted me to be. So as far as thriving for me, a hundred percent. Um, I can figure out who, who I am, what I love. I can find my voice out here. I can speak my truth. And those are all things that I was not able to do inside the walls of organized religion. Yeah. Like Laura said, you know, one of the first things you, you face is who am I? And what do I believe and what do I do um, with myself (laughs) and finding your true self and that being and becoming that, that we talk about in the other book and so on, I think is, is real, you know, and finding real community. Laura talked about finding her voice. I didn't realize as a pastor, I really didn't have a voice, even though I spoke every week and I got to write and things like that. Um, I couldn't say much beyond what they wanted me to say. Um, And to top it off, I didn't know who I was and what I really, what I believed and who my true self was. So my voice was, was uh, muffled. But, you know, finding new practices that really touch our soul um, instead of just doing what I was told to do, read your Bible, go to church and pray. And finding real companionship uh, with people like you and Brandy, um, embracing uncertainty, um, finding genuine acceptance, um, not just because I'm part of a group, Mm. um, finding real comfort, um, finding true satisfaction, uh, and peace and all those things we talk about. I... um, I would say we're definitely thriving and I wouldn't say, you know, everything is not perfect. That doesn't mean everything's perfect. It means that, um, the way, the way of the mystic, the way of being and becoming is, is a much better way. Yeah. We were talking earlier about accepting your life as it is rather than as you wish it would be. And there's something about organized religion that almost, makes our default setting to pretend that everything's okay, mm-hmm. especially when it's really not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's just no authenticity there. And the, the thing that I've seen at work in both of you uh, in the short time, the few years that I've gotten to know you is you are constantly becoming 
more authentic versions of yourself. Uh, Laura, I remember the first conversation we had, and I remember there was this one little nugget when I was like, ooh, that was the real Laura. We just heard, <laughs> I just heard the real Laura, and that was really cool. And then, did I say and then a password? Guys, was that it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, but then when you guys came down to visit us uh, here at the beach, um, we got to spend, you know, real time together, all of us. And we got to see, oh, yeah, that really was the real Laura. And now it's like more and more. I, I hear you guys doing interviews with other people and um, we'll get mm-hmm. together on the on your podcast. And I'm hearing more and more of the real Carl and Laura forehand mm-hmm. um, publicly mm-hmm. without fear of repercussion. And I love it. Yeah. And to me, that's what thriving looks like. Right. And and as you said, Carl, that doesn't mean everything's perfect. Far from it. Right. But um, there's no more freedom in this world than to be able to be who you really are without being afraid of how somebody else is going to respond. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to agree with that 100% because I think back and like I said, it was just like everything I was – I did that was outside the walls of the church. I felt like if it got on social media, it was scrutinized under a microscope. And like I said, Carl was being called into meetings and then it was, it was just, it was so emotionally draining and just so unhealthy for me. Um, it just really caused me to go like more silent, if you will. And so being outside of that, being in this desert oasis, I, it has allowed me to go, you know, it's okay that I um, speak my truth. And I've had to, you know, learn because I think probably at first, you know, a lot of things just kind of spilled out. And so I had to learn how to, you know, speak my truth Um in a way that was not going to cause harm to other people, if that makes sense. Um, and, and Carl and I, you know, that's something we've had to kind of um, learn in our marriage because for so long, you know, I mean, we've been married for 34 years. Well, for 20, 20, 21 years of it, you know, he was in the ministry and I couldn't even tell him how I felt which, you know, I mean, that's really sad when a husband and wife can't be totally transparent with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, these two years have ha- we've had to learn how to communicate again in a way that doesn't, you know, my anger doesn't get in the way. But being out here in the desert and being with people like you and Brandy has been incredibly helpful because you all have sat with us and and, and understood with us. And, and that's been, that's been priceless. You raise an interesting point. You know, when we're, when we're in organized religion, um, so much of the little bit of comfort that many of us got from that was in the routine, Mm -hmm. the familiarity, the feeling spiritual, because we had our quiet time today. And I, read two chapters of my utmost for his highest, which I hated, but I couldn't tell anybody that I hated <laughs> because everybody thought it was, said it was so good. Mm-hmm. Um, or I read my six chapters of the Bible today, or I prayed for 30 minutes, or I fasted from sunrise to sunset. 
Um, and those things made me feel spiritual and made me feel like I was spiritually thriving. Um, when you pull out of the machine, are there practices that you too have found um, help center us in a, a, a more authentic place than maybe just the ego boost of religion? Yeah, for me, of course, writing is, is important. Right? Writing helps me know what I think. It also uh, gets my feelings out, gets my thoughts out. But also I learned centering prayer, which is, is an old practice uh, where you don't say anything, you don't request anything, you don't expect anything, and you just sit. And you apply that in a lot of different ways. And and that is that is my main practice. You could, you know, sometimes classify it as meditation. Um, I still do some yoga for stretching and things like that. But getting up early and just being outside on our porch is is my best practice. It's done done wonders for me because um, I am a doer, you know, and um, that you know. So that's that's the big progression for me, and it's it seems like a, a progression backwards because I'm not, you know, there's. I can't write a book about all that because it would just take about one chapter, you know. <laughs> that'd be a that'd be a quick sermon, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's much much simpler, but much it's deeper. It's way deeper, uh, much slower, uh, more heartfelt, you know, all that kind of stuff. Laura, any practices? Yeah. So when <laughs> it's really funny because when you were talking about uh, reading the Bible and just all that stuff that I wrote on a piece of paper for Carl to see, I just wrote one word and it was chore because I just felt like all those years I would force myself to, you know, read my Bible and read the Christian books and things like that. And it was so incredibly hard for me because I, I just, I, didn't want to do it. I wasn't getting anything out of it, but I felt like I was supposed to be doing it. So, um, so for me, and I write about this in the book, you know, and I've told you this, you and Brandy, this story before, but you know, when, when our first granddaughter was born, um, I just remember meeting her for the first time in the hospital and I just held her to my chest and it was really in that moment that everything shifted for me. And I, and so for me, one of my best practices is to um, have that time alone where I'm just holding um, either Jackson or I can't hold Holland very much because she's five and she's, you know, she's busy, 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 but, um, or Sloan and just, just holding them. And what that does did for me that all those years ago, five years ago when Holland was born, was it really helped me to, it was like I was holding my inner child, if that makes sense to you. So for me, that is a practice that I've, I've kept doing when I get the chance to, and I can with Jackson because we're very fortunate right now to have him with us. And, um, 
I, I will just, it's almost like holding that part of me that just wasn't held for so long. In addition to that, I do love to just sit and listen to the birds and um, enjoy nature. I just think there's so much spirituality for me in nature. And so I love to just, just be out there and just enjoy um, looking at creation. I think it's, it's amazing. And I think for so many years, I like miss that. And so I'm really trying to soak that in now as one of my practices. Beautiful. I love it. And I'm really excited for folks to get in their hands the the heartfelt messages from both of you in this book. Carl, do you have a, a section that you could read to us from the book? Yeah, I can read you the last part of the afterword. Albert Einstein said, the important thing is to never stop questioning. We believe differently than we did 10 years ago. When we honestly let ourselves be curious, we found deeper and better answers. Sometimes the answers were amazingly simple, but often they were nuanced and mysterious and complicated. We are so glad we asked these questions. We could have never navigated the stroke recovery with my old understanding. The key to discovery, discovering beauty and truth is to remain curious not defend what we already know. We can't solve the problems and challenges of the 21st century with old ideas. We can't cling to beliefs and ideas just because the group we are familiar with believes that way. As the world evolves, our understanding of it has to move with it, or we will find ourselves irrelevant to the world around us. There are no simple catchphrase answers anymore. Many of the things are complicated, and when we try to oversimplify them, we end up missing the target completely. Solving big problems is scary because we have to leave the comfort zone of our answers and compromise and cooperate with others to find the best solutions. It's really always been this way. The problems are just different. We're not asking you to give up anything but question and consider everything. Evolve, and if your religion survives, then so be it. If it doesn't survive, then you might not have ever needed it anyway. We wish you well on your journey. Be where you are. Be who you are. Carl Homer for you. Beautiful. I love it. Again, friends, the book is out into the desert, thriving outside of organized religion. Um, It's available right now. We will have links to the book. You can find it on Kindle or paperback in the show notes for this episode. Carl and Laura, I love you both. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. We love you guys too. too. Give our best to Brandy. We miss you guys. We miss you.